Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I started seeing this dude was destroying losing mentalities. Because losing mentalities, Pastor Scott, don't start flying. They start gnawing and then hopping and then crawling. And the first thing you know, they're airborne until it has barked the fig tree. It has completely laid desolate. Come on, the vine, the church in America have been victims of, of a blight. Come on, of bugs. And those bugs are losing mentalities that are coming from the mouth of the wrong spies. But God sends somebody like John the Baptist and says, repent, change the way you think. Say it another way. Lose your losing mentality. I wish you'd touch your neighbor this morning and say, you got to lose your losing mentality. <laughs> See, instead of telling you how big the enemy is, how big the problem is, I want to say like David, oh, magnify. Oh, magnify. I think of a magnifying glass. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's preach God where real big. Let's begin to declare our God. Let's change our focus. See, because if you're going to preach how bad it is, it's because you are focused on the realm of the earth and the realm of fallenness and you are problem-oriented. But if you repent, you turn from, you look in another direction, come on. You lift up your heads and you look at how big your God is. And you start to change the way you look and what you perceive and what you think. And when there's a paradigm shift between your ears, you'll begin to declare, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And yes, I know there's some real problems, but I've got a great big God. And I've got a great big Father. And He's not a weak God. And His supply is not exhausted. Heaven's government is not shut down. The kingdom's not where you go when you die. The kingdom's where you went when you got born again. Come on, somebody. And you're a citizen right now. And your daddy cares about you right now. I'm trying to get you to eat some bugs this morning. Kill some losing mentalities. It's a government of affirmation that we switch to. Interestingly enough to me that when Jesus comes up out in this same chapter of Matthew 3, when Jesus is baptized, verse 16 Chapter 3 of Matthew said, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. Lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven, watch this, saying, This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Can I tell you, that was the affirmation of a father. We have a classic message in archives. It's one of our most requested messages. We call the approval of a father will always empower a son. And when Jesus came up out of the water, his daddy, come on, began to speak out of the heavens and says, that's my son right there. That's my boy right there in whom I am well pleased. The affirmation of that father empowered him and released him into his ministry. I want to tell you something about Jesus at this point. He had not yet been tried. He had not yet been tested. He has not raised anybody from the dead, nor has he healed anybody sick. He has not been tested, proven, tried. And daddy said, that's my boy right there in whom I'm well pleased. See, I'm convinced if we will affirm our children, if we will continue to, they may not believe it at first. See, my son, youngest son, was my, my, he was my strong-willed child. And I'd tell him the whole time when they were growing up, we, we used these principles. I'd, instead, of saying, instead of saying stuff like, you little brat, you'll never amount to nothing. 
you'll be in prison by the time you're 20. I would say to him, you're too good of a child to act like that. That's not who you are. And he'd look at me sometimes like, you don't know what I'm doing. And he said, I would literally leave the room. And he said, sometimes I'd walk in and look in the mirror and say, they don't know what I'm doing, evidently. But he said, you know what, you spoke that over my life long enough that one day I walked in that bathroom and I looked in the mirror and said, what if it's true what my dad's telling me? See, faith starts to kick in when you say it long enough. Hallelujah. See, because the communication of our faith is by the acknowledging of every good thing that's in them. I'm not getting very far this morning, but I think this is real practical. And I've said this, I think, here before because it's really a key in what really transformed my ministry. But Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the latter part of it says, let no corrupt communication go out of your mouth. But only that which is good to the use of edification. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, it goes on to say, it says, uh, it says uh, let no corrupt communication go out of your mouth. But only that which is used to the purpose of edification, that it might minister grace to the hearer and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you've been sealed to the day of redemption. When the Lord spoke that word to me, I was on an airplane many years ago, and the Lord said to me, I want you to stop using corrupt communication. And at that point, I thought maybe God was rebuking me for some words in my vocabulary that that, that was cussing, and I didn't even realize it was cussing. So I'm saying, Lord, which words am I saying that's cussing? He said, I'm not talking to you about what you call cursing. I am, however, talking to you about cursing. I said, what do you mean? He said, every time you get in the pulpit, if you curse my people, that's, that's corrupt communication. If what you preach and what we minister as parents and teachers does not come from the, from the posture of edification, what's that mean? To build people up. So when I come from this posture of preaching, I want to preach something that is to the use of edification, that it will build you up, that it might minister grace to the hearer. Because if I don't, it's corrupt communication, and it is grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Are you hearing where I'm coming from? But when we begin to speak those things over our kids, and sometimes, listen, it might take faith to speak that over your kids. Come on, come on, anybody besides me think it's going to take a little stretch to believe. <laughs> come on, but, but what happens is it will minister grace to the hearer. And at some point, when they believe that they are who you said they are, you won't need a church sheriff anymore. Because when they come into a revelation of their true identity, what we truly believe is what we act on. And if I believe I'm righteous, I'm going to act like I'm righteous. If I believe I'm holy, I'm going to believe I'm going to act like I'm holy. Our problem is a believing problem. Yeah. It's a faith issue. What do you really believe? And the truth of it is, is we've been sometimes so beat down under corrupt communication that we don't know what we believe or that we have really. See, I, listen, I know I'm not getting far this morning. But I sat right in church under the kind of preaching I just told you about where they told you everything that was wrong with you and what was how bad you were and you're a dog returning to its vomit, a sow to swallow. And I would start those meetings thinking I was saved. But by the time they get done telling me what was wrong with me, I'm thinking it's a good possibility I'm lost. I mean, it literally would shut up my faith. And then I would go someplace and people would say, well, what do you all believe up at that church? I said, well, we don't believe that you should eat devil food cake. You can eat angel food. We don't believe women ought to cut their hair. We don't believe men ought to wear jewelry. We don't believe you ought to watch TV. We don't believe 
You should play sports. We've come a long way, baby, because when I was growing up, it was a sin to take physical education. Y'all just announced a, a, a basketball team. When I was growing up, it was a sin to watch TV. Now I'm on it. I mean, I remember the day we shot our television set. We shot the dude, cold blood, right behind the barn. And I said to my pastor, can't we sell the TV? He said, if it's going to take you to hell, why you want to sell it to somebody else? We shot it. Found out that dude preaching against it had one in the closet and coat hangers with aluminum foil on it watching TV. He was a closet television watcher. I know I'm preaching good. I said, we don't believe in watching TV. We don't believe you ought to wear uh, slacks if you're, well, we don't believe, we don't believe, we don't believe. And what I realized, I, I'm standing there telling people, they're asking me, what do you all believe in that church? And I'm telling them what we don't believe. And so all of a sudden it hit me one day. What I have done is went to church most of my life and become an unbeliever. Because I don't believe anything. It's what we don't believe in that I know. Because they never taught me anything to believe. Now, if you ask me what I believe today, I'm going to tell you, I believe I'm a son. If you, if you ask me what I believe, I believe I'm redeemed. I believe I'm the righteousness of God. I believe, come on, God's favor's on my life. Hallelujah. I believe that we are the answer. I believe we are salt and we are light. I believe, come on. I'm a believer. Touch somebody. Say, hey, I'm a believer now. Yeah. Hallelujah. See, the only requirement of the new covenant is that you believe. And everything else that changes your behavior flows out of what you believe. And can I tell you that the moment Jesus comes up out of the water, the affirmation, the government of affirmation falls on the Son. And Father said, that's my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus comes up out of the waters and immediately he is driven by the Spirit. Very next chapter, I'm not going to read it. He is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he gets into the wilderness, man, there's so much to preach here. Hallelujah. But when he gets into the wilderness, and I, my question will be, why the wilderness? And the Lord said to me, he, he was driven into the wilderness because a wilderness is an unkept garden. And he said the first son, Adam, had a garden, and he turned it into a waste-hiling wilderness. And the next son is going to start, come on, in a wilderness. And by the time he's done, he's going to turn it into a garden. Come on, how many know Adam had a garden? He turns it into a graveyard, and Jesus takes a graveyard, turns it into a garden. Adam had a tree of life, and he chose a tree of death, and Jesus chose a tree of death and gave us a tree of life. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. And so he's about to pick up where the first Adam left off because the first Adam failed this identity test. Come on, somebody. I don't think it's an accident that the moment that Jesus gets up out of the grave, I read to you last night out of John 20, that when he got up from the grave, Mary of Magdala walked up to him and she said, Sir, I thought you were the gardener. I know he, in fact, was the gardener, and he just put him back in the garden. Everything he does in his redemptive work, he does it in the garden. He prays until he's 
sweats. He sweats until he bleeds. He has to sweat and he has to bleed because if he ever sweats, if one drop of blood from the divine brow ever touches a cursed earth, it'll put the curse in reverse. It said you've got to earn your bread by the sweat of your brow. How many know it's not about works and labor because Jesus already sweated to redeem us from the curse of works and labor in order to find favor with God? Come on, somebody. On Calvary's hill, he's come on between two thieves. One looks at him and says, if you be the son of God, it's the same voice of the same enemy challenging his identity. He said, if you're the son of God, save yourself and us. It's the devil clear up unto the cross trying to challenge the identity of his son. But the other thief looks over at Jesus and says, we are getting what we deserved. Touch somebody say, you already got what you deserved 2,000 years ago when you were crucified with Christ. Hallelujah. And Jesus looks back at that thief and he said, this day, not in the sweet bye by, not some glad morning, this day, you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise there is the Greek word that means Eden. He was about to put them right back in the finished work. He was about to put them right back in the garden. He was about to put them back in relationship and with favor with God. Come on. And when he got up from the dead, Mary of Magdala walks up to him. She said, sir, I thought you were the gardener. He, in fact, was the gardener. And he just put him back in the finished work. Hallelujah. I think that's some good news right there. Hallelujah. But he's in a wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he gets into the wilderness, the devil says to him, after he's fasted for 40 days, and he's afterward and hungered, the devil says, watch this, if you be the son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread. Something more powerful here than you can really grasp sometimes. There's more going on here than a little rock, literal rock and a literal loaf of bread. Because to me, the rock symbolizes the law. See, in Eden's misty garden, the temptation was, if you get enough information about good and evil, you can make yourself like God. He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How many of the law is the knowledge of sin? And what the devil is saying to Jesus is the same temptation using a different picture. He's saying... Take these rocks and turn them into something that can give you life. But how many of the writer of the Hebrews says that if there was a commandment that could have been given, that could have given you life, then verily righteousness would have been by the law. But how many know there's not rules on rocks that can give you any substance or sustenance? It does not feed you, nor does it give you life. So the gospel is not about a law you have to keep. It's about a life that will keep you. Jesus didn't come to say I gave you more rules. I come to give you more. Come on. I, hallelujah. Or up the ante of the threat. I came that you might have life. I came to give you life. I think this is a good deal, man. This is to me good news. He, he didn't come to ask you for anything. He simply said, I want to give you life. I'm, I didn't just come to give my life for you. I came to give my life to you. You've got any sense you let me live my life through you. That's all the gospel's about. Hallelujah. And the devil says to him, if you be the son. Now watch this. Jesus turns around to the devil and he says, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now it never dawns on us what the last word that proceeded out of God's mouth was. The last word God just said was in the chapter prior to that when he said, this is my son. In whom I'm well pleased. And the devil says, if you be the son. 
I think Jesus turned around to the devil and said, evidently you didn't hear what daddy just said about me. So go and get out of my face. Come on, somebody. Because daddy just said, I'm a son. If he said, I'm a son, then I'm a son. Come on. And can I tell you, when he passes that test, he does not become, the first Adam became a victim of identity theft, but the last Adam, come on, somebody, did not lose his identity. He believed who he was, and when he did, he comes up out of that wilderness. And once he passes that test, God begins to release the miraculous in his life until he begins to heal the sick, he begins to raise the dead, he begins to cast out devils, and religious devils come out of the temple saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you? Can I tell you what I believe was happening is that God is restoring the gospel back to the church. We're becoming what I call believers with an affirmation and a government of affirmation and a bunch of believers that are going to begin to rise up and say, hey, I believe what daddy said about me. And can I tell you that there's finally a message that God can confirm with signs and wonders and diverse gifts of the Holy Ghost because I believe we're about to see some people begin to emerge and we're going to see again the sick raised or the sick healed the dead raised to life and the power of God demonstrated not just in famous preachers but in a company of sons that know who their daddy is would you shout hallelujah ah uh, hallelujah let me quickly see if I can get this yet this morning go with me over to the book of St. Luke the 11th chapter I don't know how much of this I can unpack this morning but in the book of St. Luke the 11th chapter this really hit me recently 11, verse number 1. I'll let you turn there while I get a drink because I hate a dry preacher again. <laughs> Hallelujah. 11 of St. Luke. A common piece of scripture. In Luke 11 says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And when he said unto them, when you pray, pray our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he goes on to say, And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? And shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. Everything about this is significant. Say three loaves. Three loaves. For a friend of mine is in his journey, and is come unto me, and I have nothing to set before him. He from within shall answer, and say, Trouble be not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one of you that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocks, it shall be opened. If the son shall ask, say that with me, if a son shall ask. If the son shall ask for bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? 
If you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, watch this, give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. Now in this context, the key that opened this whole thing to me was, this last verse was, if you ask the heavenly Father for the Holy Spirit, won't he give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him for it? Because it looks to me like this is about bread, fish, and eggs, which it is. But stay with me a moment. How many know that the first thing he teaches them, let me see if I can unpack this calmly, because I get excited. I'm like an airplane. I want to rear back and just preach. But how many of you believe God answers prayer? Let me, let me see your hand. I want you to commit to this. I believe God answers prayer. Now, how many of you believe that if Jesus would pray, and ask God for something. If Jesus, listen, if Jesus was standing right here this morning and you had an opportunity to come up here and get him to pray for you, how many of you believe if he asked the Father for something, you'd receive it? Would you lift your hand over this place? That, to me, that's powerful. So as I started thinking about this prayer that Jesus prayed, my thought was, did God answer this prayer? Did God answer this prayer, thy kingdom come? Thy will be done in earth as it is. I have to say, yeah. Now stay with me a moment because I don't want people to get nervous and see. Because when you preach something like this, people start saying, you can't ever pray the Lord's Prayer again. No, I think that this prayer is an ongoing thing. But I believe that when Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, he was talking about more than some political overthrow of the Roman government. He was talking about the Holy Spirit coming to govern inside of you. Because how I many know I already shared this? This is in prior services. If you missed it, you've got to go back and get the CDs. But the Holy Ghost of the kingdom of God is more than a geographical location. It's more than that. It's righteousness, peace, and joy. It's located in the Holy Ghost. You've got the Holy Ghost. You've got the kingdom living inside of you. Man, if we just could, if we could really grasp what's already inside of us, if you could grasp what you already got, we could go to the house and say mission has been accomplished. We would turn the world upside down. You are so full of kingdom purpose and potential that it's not even funny this morning. If you just knew who you were, come on, you wouldn't be afraid to lay your hands on the sick. You wouldn't be afraid, come on, to ask the Father because you're a son. Not only is he a son, last night I talked about he came so that he could introduce the Father to us. That Come on, hallelujah, that he would take you to my God and your God, my Father. Father and your father where you too could live life in the context of sonship so I believe that when Jesus prayed thy kingdom come his kingdom came I believe in Acts chapter 2 it started I believe it's still like leaven it's still filling the earth and I believe we can pray thy kingdom come and it can continue to come but I believe his will has been done when Jesus said not my will but thine be done how I many he did that and Gethsemane to release to us the will of God in the earth are we all right I believe when he prayed, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. I believe we have received the forgiveness of sin. I believe he does no longer lead us into temptation because when we are tested, we can no longer say that I'm tempted, I'm tempted of God. How many know he does not lead us into temptation? He has forgiven our sin under the old covenant. If you don't forgive, you can't be forgiven. But in the new covenant, the apostle Paul writes and said, we forgive even as God for Christ's sake has already been forgiven us every aspect of this prayer has been answered he has delivered us from evil but the context of this really began to grab me are we all right am i making sense so far i feel like i'm not quite doing it justice but I, this then he then he starts into this he said which of you having a friend that's on a journey now to me he's speaking to people who have a friend in a journey now i don't know about you but i've got a lot of friends who are in a journey and a lot of times, and I'm not talking about a physical journey, I'm talking about in their Christian journey, their Christian walk. 
And in their journey, the tragedy has been that we as the church have had nothing to set before them. And what they're really wanting is three loaves of bread. Man, I'm full this morning. I don't know how to unravel all this. I hope you get some of this put in a blender, Pastor, because I'm just going to throw it out in chunks in a minute. The three loaves of bread to me speak of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. They speak of the true bread that came. They're in a journey. The ask, seek, knock. There's three loaves of bread. There's the, the primary thing that we need to feed, feed people on. The gospel is centered in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you've got a friend in his journey, there's nothing that you need in, his, in this journey that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ did not take care of for you. Because he was delivered for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. He was wounded for my transgression. He was bruised for my iniquity. The chastisement for my peace was laid on him by whose stripes we are healed. Everything we need was secured in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to serve our friends in a journey. But he goes on to say that if the friend is in his journey and he didn't have anything, he went to his friend and he started asking his friend. He knocked on the door of his friend. And his friend says, look, man, I have went to bed and my kids are in the bed. Don't bother me. Leave me alone. Now, how many of you got some friends like that besides me? High maintenance friends, I call them. When you see them come up on your caller ID, you go, no, you don't, want to, you don't want to be honest here this morning. You got some high maintenance deals. Come on. But how many of you, after a while, they pester you so long that you're thinking, okay, well, all right, if I don't answer, if I don't give, it's going to wear me out. So the guy finally gets up because of his importunity. The guy gets up and he says, okay, what do you need? Because if you don't, you're not going to let me alone. And so he gets up and he gives him as much as he needs. And so I used to preach that like this. I would preach and I'd say, man, you know what? We need to bombard heaven. We're going to keep on knocking. We're going to keep on coming to God. We're going, come on, we're going to bombard heaven because if we will continue to bombard heaven because of our opportunity, God will get up and give us what we need. Like, then the first thing hits me is like, God don't want to give it to you to start out with. See, that's the whole point. We get to think, well, Maybe I could twist God's arm with a hunger strike. Maybe I can make him do what he already wants to do if I irritate him bad enough. That's, the, that's, what, that's what we think this is about. We think, well, if I could just bombard heaven, if I'll keep after it. If I can just, come on, it, it, see, then we start, if I can just pray, and then we get into, if I can just pray effectual, fervent prayers. And what we think that means is we pray until our throat is sore, and we've busted two blood vessels in our brain. Oh, God. If I pray hard, you know what I'm talking about? And because Jesus said, he said, the effectual, fervent prayer, not Jesus, James says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, I found out through the scripture that I am righteous. So I can pray effectual, fervent prayers. But fervent doesn't mean, you know. Jesus would be to me the pattern of an effectual, fervent prayer, right? Here's an affection for him prayer. Jesus is walking down the road one day, and the guy hollers out, You can heal me if you want to. If you will, you can heal me. Jesus said, I want to be made whole. That's an affection for him prayer. Yeah. 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 
We make a production of it. Come on, somebody. And the reason we do that is because we don't really believe. I need some help in here. An effectual, perfect prayer is not always, and I'm not, look, I'm not trying to talk about formulas. We get, we have reduced everything to formulas. Here's the deal, man. I'm not, I can't take the glory when God heals somebody. So I also don't have to bear the For anyone struggling to understand John's writings in Revelation, this book provides true, biblically-based answers. Through detailed insights into the letters John wrote to the seven churches of his day, you will learn how to avoid the mistakes of the early church to overcome today's trials and tribulations. This book will provoke you to thought and dialogue, bringing greater clarity and revelation of Jesus Christ.